0: Hey everyone. I'm Ben Norton. This is Rules-Based Disorder here at Colin. I as always I'm going to take questions and have a discussion with callers, but before I do that I just want to spend a few minutes talking about the latest with China and Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. This is extremely reckless, extremely dangerous. I have spent A lot of these episodes talking about the U.S. proxy war against Russia and Ukraine and how extremely reckless and dangerous the U.S. actions were there pushing for war with Russia. Well, we see such a similar situation now where the U.S. is just pushing for this disastrous, dangerous war. And this time with China. I mean, Russia is a significant military power. But China is the most populous country on earth, 1.4 billion people. It has the largest economy. Its economy is much more deeply integrated with the U.S. and the West than the Russian economy was. This is extremely dangerous and extremely reckless. And I think a lot of people in the West don't understand how sensitive this issue is for China. There's so much propaganda being like, well, you know, why Why can't China just allow Taiwan to, you know, have its own independent policy and all this? No, people don't understand that Taiwan historically has been part of China for hundreds of years and was colonized by the Japanese empire. And for China, this is an existential issue. They have repeatedly said this is their red line. They will not allow Washington, to cross this red line, not only because of the legacy of Japanese colonialism, which is something that a lot of Chinese people still, they still very much feel. The The end of the Japanese genocide in China only ended in 1945. That's not that long ago. There are still Chinese people who remember the literal genocide committed by the Japanese empire. I, for people who are interested, I have a separate episode about the Japanese empire's crimes in China and Korea and Southeast Asia and Shinzo Abe, whose grandfather was a Nazi collaborator and a a class A fascist war criminal in the Japanese empire, who was the colonial governor of the Japanese colony of Manchuria, which was called Manchukuo. Anyway, the point is that 16 to 20 million Chinese people died in World War II. For them, World War II actually began two years earlier, 1937, with the Japanese invasion, the second Sino-Japanese War. 16 to 20 million dead Chinese people, and Japan colonized uh, Taiwan. But that, that legacy is extremely important, but it's not even just that history. It's also the fact that from a national security perspective, from a military strategic perspective, Taiwan is absolutely, it's indispensable for China's national security. In fact, there was a U.S. Navy admiral Admiral who boasted back in the 1950s when Taiwan was basically a U.S. colony after being a Japanese colony, he boasted that that. If whoever controls Taiwan can control trade with Japan and South Korea. So the U.S. plans on using Taiwan as a one as a military outpost storing nuclear weapons to threaten mainland China, which obviously is a huge national national security threat for China. No country would tolerate that U.S. nuclear weapons just just off of its coast threatening mainland China. But then also, it's a way that the U.S. could potentially try to have some kind of trade blockade of China. Obviously, that would be very hard because China is a very large country. But if the U.S. can control Taiwan, which is obviously its goal, it can also control trade between China and not only China and South Korea and China and Japan, but many other countries across the Pacific region. So it's an extremely strategic asset. And that's why the US basically wants to turn Taiwan into a colony. This is not about democracy and authoritarianism as Nancy Pelosi tried to frame it. No, this is about sovereignty and, and versus US neocolonialism. And this has nothing to do with the demo- democratic will of this, of the Taiwanese people. This is about the US empire's attempt to turn Taiwan into a colony. And similarly in the war in Ukraine, it's a very similar situation. Ukraine is not a democracy. Ukraine has effectively been a US colony since the US sponsored, mili- uh, US sponsored violent coup in 2014, a coup led by these fascist thugs. So we need to keep all of that in context when we're talking about this trip that Nancy Pelosi took. What's incredible is to see even some mainstream media outlets warning that this is extremely reckless. For instance, Thomas Friedman, a horrible imperialist at the New York Times, this really dumb columnist, even he can see the blatant danger that this poses. Now China is responding by saying that over the next several days, it's going to be holding unprecedented military exercises in the Taiwan Strait and around Taiwan. The US has troops on Taiwan which is an incredible escalation already, that alone, not even to mention Pelosi's ridiculous trip. The U.S. has sold billions of dollars to Taiwan, including $22 billion under Donald Trump and $15 billion under Obama. And Biden has already done three arms sales to Taiwan. So all of this is leading to the very real possibility of war. I did a video and a podcast at Multipolarista, people, if you want people want to get more information about the nuclear threat. I mean, it's very real. So it just blows my mind that so many Western politicians are just acting so flippantly as if this isn't a big deal, as if it's just, oh, you know, just a random person taking a trip. This is the third most powerful figure in the U.S. government, the second in line for presidential succession after Vice President Kamala Harris. This is an extremely provocative act that basically amounts to the US saying that it's trying to support separatist movements to break up China. China sees this basically as an act of war. It's coming very close to seeing it as an act of war and it's now responding. It has also trade restrictions on Taiwan. And then of course, the only language that the US knows is further escalation. Washington, does not believe in dialogue. It does not believe in diplomacy. We saw that with the Iran nuclear deal that was torn up a few years after it was signed. We saw that with the, the uh, INF treaty, intermediate range nuclear forces treaty that was also torn up by the Trump administration, which is partially what led to this proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, because the uh, tearing up Trump tearing up the INF treaty allowed the U S to put nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So I, I, I know I sound like a broken record in a lot of these episodes here, but I just need to keep stressing how incredibly dangerous this is because I don't think many people in the West really understand when China says, when you play with fire, you'll, you will be burnt. That is not, those are not empty words. China does not bluff. And the U S is forcing China to respond with these, Ridiculous, reckless provocations. And then when China responds, it's the US is going to respond again and it's going to go up the escalation ladder and could potentially lead to a full on world war and potentially even nuclear war. So I just wanted to begin this episode today just emphasizing how incredibly dangerous this moment is. And what's crazy is, you know, you go back and read history books about the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? 1962. And what's incredible about that is that I feel like now we're going through multiple missile crises at the same time with Ukraine, now with Taiwan. And the response of the media, for the most part, excluding maybe a few criticisms of Pelosi, is encouraging this, encouraging the possibility of nuclear war, encouraging at the very least the possibility of World War Three. It is really insane, and it represents just how out of touch so many people in the U.S. political and media establishment are. But with that said, I'm now going to start responding to questions, and I'm going to start here with Snapdragon. Go ahead.
1: Hey, hi, Benjamin. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm good, I'm good. Been a big fan of yours from your days, uh, in Greyzone. Was a supporter of Greyzone and all you folks individually on, uh, uh, on Patreon. And, uh, I think, uh, I, I of course, uh, still miss you, uh, not being there on Greyzone. I still believe that, uh, you have a lot more in common with Aaron and Max than what, uh, you know uh, what your differences are, so that's something I just wanted to put forth uh, up front.
0: Yeah, well, no, thank you. I appreciate the support, and you know, I'm, I'm doing something different now, and I think I'm—I've been happy with uh, this new outlet that I have, Multipolarista. But I wish—I wish them the best of luck, and and yeah, and I'm just going to continue doing the work that I am now
1: fantastic like uh uh, it's it's great that you have started another outlet i think that gives you more editorial independence as well uh so uh having said that i think it's very important that you uh brought the topic that you did today uh very uh very good points made by you uh uh so what do you so i i personally am of the opinion that uh 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 that, that that for a while now uh the chinese have been extremely patient with uh, american provocations regarding uh, uh the one china policy regarding the so called uh, salami diplomacy salami slicing diplomacy of america where they keep on step by step step by step every single day slowly slowly start chipping away at the uh, sovereignty of America with every single step that they do and always the step is so small that any military reaction from China is going to be seen uh, by the international community as an overtly aggressive move. Uh, from your perspective, where do you see this heading? Clearly, I think uh, in my view the events of the last three to four days uh, were a big victory for uh, the United States. Uh, I think uh, they they successfully managed to uh, embarrass uh, the Chinese leadership uh, in front of the global south by showing that still America is the preeminent power and America can enforce its will anywhere across the world even in a region which uh, its competing peer, near-peer power considers to be its uh, backyard. So I think America has very successfully shown that. So where, where do you see this going from here?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and I think you put it really well, especially in terms of the salami slicing tactics that the U.S. constantly uses uses in its diplomacy. We also saw that with, you know, the Iran nuclear deal and the U.S., Basically, the Biden administration killing any chance of returning to the Iran nuclear deal. As for China, where do I see it going? It's hard to predict. I mean, if I'm honest, I did many interviews before Russia started this military operation on February 24th in Ukraine, in which I said in the weeks leading up to it, there's no way Russia is going to invade. So I was wrong about that. It's hard. It's hard to, t- to predict. I mean, we live in a pretty crazy historical moment, but honestly, with the war in Ukraine and the way seeing the way that it's, it's going, I, drew, I really do unfortunately think that it's going to lead to some kind of war in Taiwan as well, that the U.S. is going to keep pushing the Taiwanese just as the U.S. was pushing the Ukrainians, pushing them, pushing them, pushing them, pushing them crossing China's red lines just as it crossed Russia's red lines and China is going to respond just as Russia responded. And, and I think people don't understand that even for Ukraine, which obviously for Russia was a major red line and NATO expansion constantly right up into Russia's borders, Zelensky threatening to put nuclear weapons in Ukraine, Zelensky threatening to do a military operation to retake Crimea. I mean, all of that was extremely provocative. The West ignoring Russia's demands for security guarantees. All of that, obviously, is what pushed Russia to launch a military operation. And even then, Ukraine is not part of Russia. Taiwan is part of China. So this is even more provocative and even more dangerous And it's forcing China to take a position that I think is going to be, I think, even larger than the the Russian operation. So, I mean, you just have to look at the trajectory in the past, not only the past several days and weeks and months, but the last few years, going back to the Hillary Clinton announcement of the pivot to Asia, and then especially the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State taking So many aggressive measures against China and hinting that the U.S. would recognize Taiwanese independence. It's all hinting. It's all pointing to a certain direction, which is, I think, pretty easy to see happening. The U.S. in the next few years is going to declare that Taiwan is an independent country. China is going to send its troops in and the U.S. has said that it would militarily intervene. Now, what would that look like? Would that mean the U.S. sending more? There are already troops in Taiwan, although there aren't that many. There are several dozen, but that we know of at least. Does that mean the U.S. send troops to to Taiwan? I don't think necessarily there will be troops, but does it mean that the U.S. will send, you know, the U.S. will do bomb bombing raids? And does that mean that China will will sink a U.S. aircraft carrier? that is carrying a bunch of U.S. planes that are doing bombing raids. I mean, that's what's hard to predict. But I frankly think that this is all pointing in one direction, which is some kind of war that is not necessarily a direct war between the U.S. and China, but something like Ukraine, but potentially even worse. Because in, in, in Ukraine... It's not just, of course, Ukraine against Russia. There are more than 20 different countries that are, that whose militaries are involved in directly supporting Ukraine. They have a command structure led by the U.S. and based in Germany and at U.S. military bases in Germany. And we also know that the U.S. has CIA officers and special operations forces along with Canadian, French and Uh, Lithuanian special operations forces that are on the ground in Ukraine, including on the front lines, who are directly involved in the fighting against Russia. So, I mean, that is very close to being a conventional war with Russia. So I think if they're doing that in Ukraine, if they're that crazy, it seems like it's actually not that much of a leap to say that they would potentially do the same thing in Taiwan. And unfortunately, I see no indication whatsoever of anyone on the Western side even hinting that they might try to find a, a way out of this. Um, hinting that they, they want to f- come to a political solution. They want to come to a settlement with the Chinese. There's no hint of that, just as there is no hint of that with Russia. All it is is more provocation, more escalation. So I don't see any way out, unfortunately.
1: Uh, I think you you made a very good point by comparing uh, uh, Taiwan to Ukraine. I think there are many similarities. In fact, it's much worse in Taiwan because Taiwan is not a sovereign country the way Ukraine actually was. Having said that, uh, if you uh, so there is one thing that uh, has confused uh, many people, which I think. Uh, uh, an Indian ex-diplomat, M.K. Badra Kumar, also recently pointed out that for the yeah, last... i could, two, sorry,
0: if I can cut you off really quickly, I'll just, uh, I want to just recommend his website. Anyone who's listening, India check punchline. out India Punchline Badra Kumar. He's amazing. He's one of the best yeah. geopolitical analysts.
1: Exactly. He comes from a family of uh, diplomats in India. Uh, he's a multi-generational... Uh, uh, family. Uh, so, having oh, said Congress, that, right? uh, he is apolitical as he's part of the Indian Foreign Services.
0: But my yeah, well, I I do know that uh, he he's very clear to avoid talking about you know domestic partisan Indian politics. But my understanding exactly. is that his family were involved in. I mean, obviously, it was all Congress governments until recently. But yes. my understanding is like they're he's kind of affiliated a little bit with Congress.
1: He's definitely not sympathetic to the fascist elements on the right of the RSS and BJP. Yes, he's definitely, he has no sympathies for that. Uh, But having said that, he has been uh, very careful to not show any political alignment uh, publicly, to the best of my knowledge.
0: Yeah, that's true. I I have seen he he did criticize, at least early on in the Modi government, he did criticize BJP, which is, yeah, which is good, but... Yeah, he he's a very interesting guy because it's always clear that he is being a very professional diplomat and not commenting on local politics.
1: Exactly. So uh, the other thing that uh, M.K. Badr Kumar also points out is that uh, if you look at the last three to four months, China has not, you know, uh, despite what we on the Global South, the coalition of the uh, Global South imagine, of an arrival of a competing bloc that is anti-imperialist in nature, uh, China has not been uh, that forthcoming in that. Uh, What do I mean by that? And what does he mean by that? Uh, Essentially that if you look at, uh, there was a lot of noise about, you know, the Mir payments integrating when Visa and MasterCard started receding uh, from uh, Russia, there was a lot of noise about UnionPay jumping in. But UnionPay backed out because they were worried about the American sanctions. Mm -hmm. Then you had Huawei which backed out because it was worried about American sanctions. I mean, I don't know. They have already been sanctioned to the death. But what they were worried about, I do not understand. And a step further, Alibaba, which essentially enables a lot of Russian businesses to sell in China, which is the main source for uh Lot of Russian SME businesses removed more than 60 to 70 percent of all Russian businesses from their platform uh, just to ensure that they do not have any challenges associated with uh, you know uh, American sanctions. Mm-hmm. Even economically, despite all the initial noise about a commodity-based currency developing. Uh, And the enthusiasm shown from the Russian front and other places actually uh, you know China has not yet uh, made any uh, moves in that direction also uh, if you look at it DJI has more or less squeezed and made it impossible for uh, its drones to be exported to uh, Russia and it has become such a big problem that literally I think if you are on Telegram, you would notice that people in Russia just keep uh, individuals, you know, cross over the border by drones. And then they are just moving across and moving, uh, you know, and individually provide, supporting the, uh, the armies of the DPR and the uh, uh, LPR. So, oh, oh, yes, I mean, the Russians have done a good, the Chinese have done a good job in terms of just buying the oil. But beyond that, they have uh, been very resistant. And also, I happen to know someone who is part of uh, uh, a big think tank in Beijing that is very close to Zhongnanhai. The Zhongnanhai is the seat of uh, Chinese power just like Capitol Hill is for the United States. So, according to him, even in this entire Nancy Pelosi fiasco, uh, the problem that the communist party faced is, yes, Hai, the party school and the politburo all are unanimous that there needs to be an end to uh, American aggression towards uh, one China policy, but there is a really large contingent in Zhongnanhai in central party school and in the politburo, not the standing committee, but the larger politburo, which is a 25 member group that uh, where there is this, where there is a uh, a belief that the chinese future lies with the west where there is a fascination because most of these people are tech educated most of them have gone done their masters in the united states they are coming from an engineering Technology background. They are all they have family in Silicon Valley in California. So there is that uh, Emotional connect with uh, the United States and belief, and also at some level Happiness with the structure that exists today, which has enabled Chinese growth for the last four decades the structure where they keep buying us dollars and keep dev- and uh, uh you know, keep exporting to United States demand and creating jobs in uh, China. So there is this very strong group which Putin calls as the fifth column, which I think comes from, you know, b- b- historical uh, roots from South Africa, but whatever, which Putin calls as the fifth column, which is very, very strong in China, which is not enabling China to decouple despite for the last 13 years, them talking about decoupling from the US dollars. Because internally, structurally, I think uh, there are strong roots which uh, want to stick to this uh, current uh, system. So I I don't know what's going to happen, but I'd like to hear your views on that. Why do you think uh, China has been so... uh, you know, slow in moving away from the US dollar considering now it's at 20. Now it's as far as the latest projections by the end of this year, there'll be a $19.7 trillion economy nominally, not even on a PPP basis. So that makes it very close to being as big as the United States economy.
0: Yeah. So what do you Yeah. All excellent points. And, you know, I I agree with the point you said. I mean, they weren't even really an uh, opinion; they were just kind of objective facts. It is definitely true that within the Communist Party of China, up to incl- including the the Politburo, there still are certain elements that are sympathetic to the West, and this is a legacy of the very complex history of the reforms. Starting in in 1978, you know, Deng Xiaoping, who is a very complex figure and his strategy of, you know, lying low and biding time, lying low and maintaining a or bide time and maintain a low profile. It depends. People translate it differently. And, you know, that those reforms in many ways made a lot of sense because they have ended up succeeding. China has become the largest economy in the world, as you just pointed out. Not only according to Purchasing Power Parity, where it's already been the largest economy for for a few years now, but increasingly, even according to other metrics, the largest economy. So that strategy worked, but clearly there needs to be some moment of decoupling. And I agree that there is a lot of hesitancy, but I think it's inevitable. And I think a lot of people in China are coming to that realization now, including many elements of the CPC who were sympathetic to the west who were western educated you can see that very clearly in the increasing what's the word i should use the increasing outspokenness of the foreign of the foreign ministry until really about 5 years ago the foreign ministry in china was very conservative in the sense that it did not opine a lot on issues. It was very careful not to criticize foreign countries, certainly not the West, but in the past few years, especially since the rise of Trump and especially since Biden and, and Blinken coming to power, the foreign ministry in China has become much more outspoken criticizing Western foreign policy, criticizing U.S. wars. So that is a really new development. And I think it's going to clearly continue to move in that direction as the U.S. makes it clear to China that it's not going to allow that integration to continue going forward. So I agree with you. I think it's an objective fact that there are a lot of people in, in China, including in the government, who would like to see an improvement of relations with the West. And in many ways, that's similar to what happened in Russia after the overthrow of the Soviet Union. Let's not forget that that Putin himself was a close ally of Yeltsin. And when Putin came in, he came in to be a more competent manager of Russian capitalism who was supposed to continue many of Yeltsin's policies. And I think at first Putin thought that maybe Russia would be allowed to integrate. In fact, before he initiated this military operation this February, he talked about how he met with Bill Clinton and asked about joining NATO and Bill Clinton laughed and said that would never happen. So, I mean, Putin, I think also represents part of this Russian political class that thought that that Russia could integrate with the West, just like there are still people in the Chinese political class who think that China can stay integrated with the West, but it's becoming increasingly clear that's no longer an option. And I think those people are gonna end up either having to change their views or being pushed out. It's very clear Xi Jinping is in a position of power now. Uh, He's in a position of strength, that is. You know, when he first came in in 2013, he initiated this anti-corruption operation. And it's true that there was a lot of corruption. But so it wasn't fake. I mean, it was a real anti-corruption operation. But also the anti-corruption operation was of political character. And that was, it was getting rid of the rightists from the CPC who were very pro-West and also pro-capitalism. The capitalist rotors, if you will. And we have seen that the CPC and China have moved left. And it's clear that Xi is, is no longer, he's no longer worried about people replacing him as he was in the early days back in 2013. He's clearly operating from a position of strength. And if you look at, Xi's political trajectory, if you look at his foreign policy, if you read his speeches, even though he is often somewhat moderate in his speeches, it's very clear that he and Putin both are, have, a, have a very a deep alliance and understand that their future is not with the West. So I think all the points you said are absolutely true. But what we're going to see over the next several years, I think, is the CPC is going to shift A lot of those people who have those pro-Western views are either going to be pushed out or going to be forced to change those views. And China is going to basically come to the same realizations that Russia came to. And, you know, Putin himself made this famous speech at the Munich Security Conference, and I believe it was 2006 or 2007, right, where he said that, you know, we tried to be a partner of the West, but they will not allow us to be independent. he, He used the term hegemony, talking about Western hegemony. So it took many years for, for Russia to come to that realization. And I think China is, is very quickly coming to the same realization.
1: Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry, but I just want to ask one last thing before I take too much time. Uh, that's a very great answer. The last thing I wanted to ask is I think you know, Russia has done a great job in showing that we can stand up to the global uh, imperial power, which is the collective West with United States leading the charge and uh, the European lackeys and we can stand up to them. Uh, and so it has enthused the global uh, south to a great degree and brought a positive energy that was missing since the collapse of uh, Soviet Union and maybe since the collapse of since the mid-19 or late 1970s. Do you think this the events over the last one week where united states was able to assert its uh, hegemonic power in a rather blatant manner do you think whatever gains we made uh, in terms of uh, the spirit of the global south the imperial powers have been able to crush the push back on that spirit again And reminded everyone in the global South, whether it is South America, whether it is Southeast Asia, that see, if you are thinking that you are going to ally with China, if you are a Venezuela, you are thinking that you are going to ally with China, but China can't even protect its own borders. We can do whatever we want there. How is China ever going to help you here, uh, you know, thousands of kilometers uh, away from China itself. So I'm pretty sure that uh, that that is a thought that must have come into the global south due to how things have gone in the last one week. What's what's your view upon that?
0: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, my my um, I, I understand this much more profoundly from Latin America's perspective, just closely you know living in Latin America and following the response of different governments. You're absolutely right that a lot of countries in the global south have felt a, a, a new kind of empowerment and uh, strength, given that Russia is standing up to the U.S. and NATO and the EU. Um, certainly, we've seen that in Africa as well. South Africa, which, you know, whose government often will kind of play the, the West against the Asian Eurasian powers. Uh, south Africa's government has also been very outspoken and criticizing NATO. So. You're right. I I don't think this recent development in Taiwan is going to temper that. Now, obviously, you're right that in the short term, this was a diplomatic victory for the U.S. by making China look weak. But in the long term, as I said at the beginning of this episode, I think it's going to really blow back in the face of blow up in the face of the U.S. and actually do more damage to the U.S. than to China, because it's now giving China more justification to, to expedite the process of reunification. Xi Jinping has made it clear, going back to 2013 when he came in, that one of his top goals was reunification. And now I think that's, that inevitable reunification is going to be sped up. And there's no way the U.S. can stop it. It's going to be like a Ukraine situation where the U.S. just pushes the Taiwanese off of the cliff and then uses their death to pr- milk it for propaganda and to justify sanctions and all of this but there's no way i mean we've already seen that the Ru- the russian military is clearly winning in ukraine and it's going to win as actual military experts have been saying from the beginning and in Ukraine, in uh, taiwan it's it's even less it's even less up for debate there's no way that taiwan has any chance whatsoever so I think you're right that in the short term, this has done damage, but I, I wouldn't overstate it. And honestly, I think for me, what's interesting and, and you should, if you follow me on Twitter, you should send me a DM because I'd like to pick your brain. For me, I think it, the trajectory is clear that the integration of China, Russia and Iran is is inevitable at this point. It's, the US has, has made that inevitable. So I, I'm, not, I'm not worried about China or Russia or Iran ending up allying with the West. That, that's not going to ever happen at this point. But I think the real question that could be the game changer for the entire world, especially for Asia, are India and Pakistan. And clearly, Pakistan is you know very close to China. Um, Pakistan was trying to improve its relations with Russia under Imran Khan, which partially led to the coup. Um, of course, India, you know, has as as um, Badra Kumar has shown shown very well in his excellent analysis, um, India has played this this crisis in Ukraine very effectively in terms of its diplomacy um, in maintaining its close relationship with Russia, although, of course, India and China have a very difficult relationship. So for me, I think that's the those those two countries, you know, these massive countries are going to be the real factor that could shift the equation in in one of two directions. But in terms of China, Russia, and Iran, and a lot of the global South, I I do not see that alliance weakening. I only see it getting stronger. And in Latin America, we also see that with Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, all of these countries. If you you read closely their diplomatic statements, if you listen to what a lot of their, you know, um, more, you know, uh, intellectual types are affiliated with the parties, they all they all see very clearly that they're part of this kind of growing international uh, coalition. And it, you can loosely say it's that it's the group of friends in defense of the UN Charter, although there are some contradictions in that. And, and I do see that strengthening. But for me, the real question going forward is, what's going to happen with certain individual countries that could go either way specifically india pakistan indonesia philippines and turkey
1: uh, regarding india i can just answer it very quickly in two to three uh sentences yeah, indian right. foreign policy historically right from the time it has become independent under uh, 1947 and nehru took leadership Uh, The Indian foreign policy is all about don't push us too much, we'll go to the other side. What do I mean by that? That is India has always maintained neutrality in its relationship but if one party pushes it too much to take positions that are uncomfortable to it then India goes to the complete other side and that is exactly what happened uh, in the mid 70s when India which was still then a neutral uh, country and uh, in fact uh, the western powers provided it aircraft carriers western powers provided India nuclear material before the nuclear suppliers group was created Indian uh, Canadians Americans British helped us build uh, helped India build nuclear power plants so on and so forth but in the 70s when uh, Nixon and uh, Kissinger Kissinger pushed India too hard on Bangladesh then India completely amended its constitution and uh, and its preamble to become essentially a socialist republic in mid uh, 70s so India historically has always followed that uh, path and it will continue to follow that path that is As far as United States is concerned, our position will continue to be. We will be an ally of yours. We wish to enhance Indo-Pacific security, especially across the Indian Ocean, which is a completely open territory where there is no and a very, very large open swath of ocean, which needs to have, you know, uh, and India does not have the naval power to project there. So, and United States individually cannot project an entire power across the Indian Ocean. So, we are ready to partner with you on security parameters there. But if you push us too hard to make choices that we don't want to, then we'll move to the other side. And as far as China is concerned, our position uh, will also be something similar, which is that, yes, India has a lot to gain with Chinese trade. There are things that uh, work for us. But if you push us too much, dominate us too much, then we are going to completely align ourselves with the United States, which is to the detriment of uh, China. So this threat that uh, we are going to completely align to the other side is uh, the foundation of uh, Indian uh, diplomacy for the last uh, uh, 70 years. Uh, As far as Russia is concerned, uh, Indian diplomatic corps has very good relationship with Russian diplomatic corps. There is an ease and comfort of uh, work, that is at a at a professional operational level. Indian diplomatic corps historically has found it very easy to work with Russian diplomatic corps. and uh, that that includes even the Foreign services officers getting trained and so on and so forth. And most importantly, it is a very important relationship because Russia doesn't sell us doesn't just sell us military equipment, but, and also uh, certain space technology, but Russia is also involved in knowledge transfer to Indian strategic industries across Indian space research and also across Indian uh, uh, defense uh, research primarily across the entire chain including up to long-range ballistic missiles intercontinental ballistic missiles so on and so forth which are of high strategic importance to India so so yes this is the scenario so I don't see and no due to despite uh, whatever happens the colonial past and the colonial memory in the Indian psyche is way too strong for any government, whether it is a BJP government or a Congress government or any government to ever take power where that particular political leadership aligns with imperial powers. That is never going to happen. No Indian, whether he is on the extreme right or the extreme left, can ever tolerate uh, can never forget the colonial memory. And that is very, very strong in the Indian psyche. And, uh, so even in India, the biggest supporters of Putin are mostly on the right wing or on the fascist side. Even on the left side, obviously, you have great supporters of Putin as well. It's only the small niche Western educated liberal class that is United States prone. So, uh, so I think China also realizes that The thing, the way I see the relationship move forward is Chinese at some point move away, uh, withdraw their influence in Sri Lanka. They withdraw their influence in Bangladesh. They withdraw their influence in, uh, you know, this around uh, in Nepal and also in Bhutan and accept India as the regional power of South Asia and uh, pull away their... uh, the influence in this region and give India this space and that is how things are going to evolve and if that happens then India automatically will align further to the Russia, China, Iran block. That is my view.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much. Uh, excellent analysis. I, I hope you're right. I, th- I hope that's a scenario that ends up happening. My only concern is that for BJP, that the, the use of anti-China rhetoric for their own domestic political reasons might lead to them leaning more closely to the West simply to advance their own political interests domestically, which is partially what we've seen in the U.S. I, that's one of the factors that led to this disaster now where the a disaster from the perspective of U.S. imperialism, that is, where China and Russia are deeply closely allied. The U.S. strategy going back to the first Obama administration was to try to improve relations with Russia and Iran in order to isolate China. And for their own domestic partisan reasons, domestically, the Democrats sabotaged U.S.-Russia relations, and it's completely irreparable at this point. So obviously, Indian politics is not the same, but that would be my concern is hopefully, I just hope that... uh, you know, Modi or even someone, let's say uh, Yogi Adityanath or someone like someone even more extreme follows him. I just hope that they don't, they they still maintain a kind of balanced foreign policy and don't just use it to uh, support their domestic policy as well.
1: Uh, I don't think uh, the BJP has uh, done that. Uh, BJP uses Islamophobia uh to you know, unite the nation. This is much more complicated. In fact, BJP doesn't use anti-China rhetoric uh, to unite the nation. That is just a natural sentiment in the country. In fact, the the Congress party is the party that uh, uh, pushes BJP to become more uh, blatantly anti-China.
0: Uh, yeah. it, it's so similar to what the Democrats do. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 such so, so similar
1: tactics go ahead primarily because they don't need to uh they have found uh islamophobia to be a very easy way to unite the nation which is divided across language and caste so they they have found hinduism to be a very good uniting factor and primarily bjp bjp leadership bjp politics is primarily around uh Uniting, uh, the country around, uh, uh, religion. I mean, and there are more than out of almost 83% of Indian population or a billion people is essentially Hindus. So if you get that, you can win any election. So they don't, they don't use, uh, anti-China rhetoric. But having said that, you know, there are some, still some challenges if China starts expanding its influence around India, whether it's Nepal, whether it's Bangladesh, whether it's Sri Lanka. Huh, then you know. Then there'll be challenges.
0: Well, thank you for the really, really interesting analysis and good questions. It's always, it's always nice meeting someone new here and uh, calling and having a conversation. So send me a message on Twitter or wherever, and uh, we'll we'll chat more. I, I'm going to take the other. Uh, people have been patiently waiting though, so thanks for the call. I'm going to jump on to Sean. Hey Sean, sorry for keeping you waiting, but I, that was a very interesting conversation. Go ahead.
2: No worries. He's much more knowledgeable than I am, so I completely get it. Um, yeah, uh, I was actually wondering because of the fact, like, this is in, this is in one way or another an escalation, and with the with Russia kind of giving America for the first time a public bloody nose that we've seen in you know, I don't, I think definitely my lifetime, I don't know how many lifetimes. That there is this kind of understanding that something can potentially be done to kind of damage or degrade the US, you know, it, it, uh, you, the US, you know, stranglehold over the world, especially considering the Russia pretty much just, you know, supplies insane amounts of oil to Europe and pretty much said you're going to buy it in euros or you're not, or, or rubles or you're not going to buy it at all. I was just kind of wondering what are potential actions besides military actions do you think might potentially be possible within China's toolbox to actually begin to start to hit against the United States? Because of the fact we do know that the Chinese economy and government uh, supplies a a, a ton. It is literally supplying the United States economy and system and society. Are there any potential actions, conditions, things that you think that they can do or might do as a mechanism to damage the U.S. through means other than, like I said, war?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. First of all, I think we should understand that China's foreign policy is very conservative, and I mean that obviously not in the sense of like a right wing, but I mean in the sense that China is very careful in its foreign policy. Very, very careful. I was saying earlier that it wasn't really until a few, a few years ago that it even started criticizing the West and its foreign policy. Russian foreign policy for decades, even going back to the Soviet Union, has always been much more of what you would call an activist foreign policy. It is, And, and I don't mean that in the way of meddling in foreign countries' affairs. No, I mean that in the sense that it, Russia has clearly pushed a political line in its foreign policy, whereas China is trying to balance all these different powers and trying to maintain good relations with everyone. Russia has understood, you know, it's obviously during the Soviet Union, uh, Russia's, the you know, the Russian Federation, or the Russian, um, rather than it's the Russian SSRs, not the Russian Federation, the Russian SSR and the Soviet Union, um, Moscow's foreign policy was very clearly political in the sense that pushing like a particular line of support for socialist movements, national liberation struggles, obviously it's different today. Moscow's foreign policy in the Russian Federation now is not motivated in the same way, but it is a very activist foreign policy in the sense that they are allying with countries and supporting countries that are against the West and their foreign policy is very critical of the West. If you, if you go back a few years, China would always talk about, for instance, they would always say, like, you know, um, we want to maintain the best relations possible with our partners in the West. The U.S.-China relationship is extremely important. It, it wasn't they were basically forced to suddenly start criticizing the West in response to this constant provocation and escalation. They're always the one that's responding, not the one that's escalating. So I do not just given that that very very real difference in just the way that the Chinese do foreign policy as a way to, as opposed to the way that the Russians do foreign policy, um, you know Chinese foreign policy it, it really does follow this kind of doctrine that goes back to Deng Xiaoping of lie low and bide your time, and it now with I mentioned the changes that we've been seeing with Xi Jinping. We are seeing a more kind of uh, outspoken criticism of the West, but criticizing the West is one thing. Actually taking concrete actions to, to challenge US foreign policy interests is another thing. Ch- China, just it doesn't really have that kind of history of taking such an adversarial foreign policy like Russia does. So I, I just don't see it doing that. Now, Taiwan is different within China's territory, Taiwan being part of China, as even the U.S. recognized in in the 1970s in the three communiques that that normalized relations, China, of course, is going to be very responsive and adversarial, adversarial is not the right word, very forceful in defending its sovereignty and its interests inside its own borders. But there's there's just not, China's not going to like, uh, you know, like for instance, Iran, Iran will support resistance groups in West Asia that will attack U.S. military occupiers, that will attack the soldiers illegally occupying Iraq, that will attack the soldiers illegally occupying Syria. There is not a historical precedent of China doing something like that. It's just their foreign policy is much more careful.
2: Okay, thanks. And just kind of a quick follow up. I heard something about Saudi Arabia potentially probably landing one of the most kind of, you know, <laughs> death-defying blows to the United States, which would be to kind of weaken the petrodollar. I heard um, Saudi Arabia was considering uh, using the yuan, uh, I don't know what the currency is called, uh, but... The, uh, the,
0: the Chinese yuan,
2: yeah. Y- yuan to, um, to actually uh, you, to sell and buy oil in the yuan. Is that still a potential possibility, or is that just kind of off the table? Is that what Joe Biden's um, kind of visit was all about, or is there anything going forward with that that you potentially know about?
0: Yeah, so this was actually acknowledged by the the Wall Street Journal, very mainstream corporate media. Yeah, uh, China has a very good relationship with Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia has been discussing uh, selling its oil, listing its oil in the Chinese Yuan. Venezuela has already done that for a few years now. So I think that's actually a very real possibility. Now, that doesn't mean that the petrodollar is gonna die immediately, obviously, because they're also gonna sell oil in the dollar. They're just gonna do both. So it is a significant change and it shows a move in a particular direction. But I also don't think, I'm also careful not to say that it doesn't mean that this is the end of US dollar hegemony in the short term. Now, in the long term, I think it is even potentially in the medium term. But what we're seeing now is the seeds of this new multipolar world where even a country like Saudi Arabia that has been basically a U.S. proxy regime for decades, even Saudi Arabia is diversifying its relations. I actually have a video and a podcast at Multipolarista about this, specifically about Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia it was about Saudi Arabia's relations with Russia and, and China. China is Saudi Arabia's largest trading partner, and Russia has very has increasingly good relations with Saudi Arabia as well. Mohammed bin Salman, who, I mean, he's a very odious figure, obviously. I'm not endorsing MBS in any way, especially given the horrible war in Yemen, but he is an independent leader. He's not a US puppet, and he has been improving relations with both Russia and China, buying Russian weapons. Saudi Arabia and Russia just signed a military agreement. So if you want more information, you can check out my video, but that's definitely what Biden's trip was about. Even The Guardian acknowledged in an article that the real purpose of Biden's trip was to basically kind of uh, slap the back of the hand of Saudi Arabia and say, look, you all have to stick with us. You can't flirt with China and Russia too much.
2: Well, much, much appreciated, yeah. I think I, I would agree in the short term, you know, it's too much, but it's just like, you know, I think I think the United States is just kind of the public bully of, of the world is what we are, and the fact that Russia just pretty much said, listen, we don't give a fuck, you know what I mean, has given all the other countries, like, this feeling of like, wait, you can do that? And now <laughs> I think, like, everybody's like, Iran's like, yeah, screw this. Hey, what's up, Russia? And And even Saudi Arabia just, like, I don't get like, what are you going to do? You meet, and the truth is right now, the United States it's so screwed up, so fucked up because, you know, evil, but the United States needs Saudi Arabia's allyship right now. Well, I, I want to say they need it more, but like, Saudi Arabia is such a key, like key to this entire situation that it's insane. And the fact that there is this kind of development of like, you know, better relationships, just it, it, it weakens the United States condition within the world so heavily that it's just like this is, you know, it's big. You know what I mean? Regardless, I think it's I think it's huge what's happening right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, it shows this multipolar world we're in where you have polls and then you have countries that are going to try to play the different polls against each other. Like the previous guest was saying about India, India, you know, was one of the co-founders of the non-aligned movement and has this history of having a non-aligned policy, playing the West against Russia or back, back in the first Cold War against the Soviet Union. And Saudi Arabia is doing that right now as well. It's, it's playing the US against China and Russia for toward its advantage. And that, that of course is angering the US because, you know, the US relies on certain countries to be not just allies, but basically puppets. Uh, you know, we see that clearly with South Korea and Japan just obediently falling in line, imposing sanctions on Russia, basically joining NATO now, Russia. Uh, I mean, um, in the most recent NATO summit in in Madrid, South Korea and Japan attended. I mean, these are countries in the Pacific, very far from the North Atlantic, but the U.S. is used to countries just obediently falling in line like that. But the world's the world is changing. And even longtime allies like Turkey and Saudi Arabia are are being more independent. And that's of course angering Washington.
2: Because yeah. it is a
0: bully. I mean that's what it is. That's the word. It's a bully.
2: It, it's actually I just I think I have the perfect analogy. The United States is like the mean girls club. Like we're we're the biggest mean girl in the world, and as long as we got all the other mean girls in line, we're good. You know what I mean? Everybody I don't want to deal with them. But yeah, you get but like what
0: a cross between Mean Girls and Ted Bundy.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're serial killer like, mean Girl. You know, Oh, no, no. It took me a while to realize, like, Hillary Clinton was, like, 40,000 times more evil than Ted Bundy, like, on a literal scale. You know what <laughs> I mean? I was like, oh, wow, and she's a feminist icon. We're not in a good place. But, uh, but yeah, well, I, I definitely appreciate it. And, yeah. I think like a couple of the Mean Girls switch and now it's just like, oh, this this is not invincible. And so I think I think this is I think we're seeing the decline and the, the fall of an empire right now within this entire situation. Also, climate change will do it, too. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- well, thank you again for uh, answering my questions and been really informative. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Great questions. All right, so there are four more people here in the queue. I I will take everyone, um, but please no one else join because I'm gonna wrap up after this. So I'll take the last four questions and I'll wrap up. So here is Fahim, go ahead.
3: Hey, Ben, uh, great to hear from you uh, again. Uh, so a uh, couple of questions for you. Uh, how come or have you seen any pushback uh, coming uh, this uh, again, uh, on the anti-China uh, uh, rhetoric or the uh, ramping up of uh, um, um, uh, tension between the U.S. and China come from the uh, U.S. Uh, manufacturing sector? Uh, what I mean is that, uh, the US manufacturing sector being opposed to like hey guys why are you uh, ramping up uh, stuff a lot of our uh, products come from uh, China we make a lot of money uh, from uh, VM uh, China so, Why do you want to rock uh, the boat? I'm curious uh, why, uh, um, uh, at least I haven't seen it. And I work in the industrial uh, process control equipment uh, environment and every uh, year, when we would talk about, like, okay, which markets are uh, doing extremely well and growing and all, and China's always been uh, number one. Uh, and so part of me is, like, okay, why uh, are so many of these corporations not uh, uh, speaking up and uh, being uh, like, okay, you guys are basically going to uh, choke us uh, if we end up in a conflict? and the second question uh, that i have is with regards to the swift system or the russia chinese version of the swift system so what is so special about the swift uh, system that uh, other uh, major uh, uh, countries cannot Duplicate. I mean, is it just a technology thing, or is it uh, uh, the fear of uh, of uh, from uh, the the fear of the U.S. uh, uh, going against uh, these other uh, banks? So, but those are the two uh, quick uh, questions.
0: Yeah, great questions. I'll start with the SWIFT question. From my understanding, it's also just simply a logistical issue of getting all these banks all around the world and not just banks, but the, you know, the companies that operate with the banks, uh, you know, Visa, MasterCard, different payment systems. There's there's a very complex financial architecture involving all of this and creating an entire new infrastructure is a very complex process. So just saying that we're going to create an alternative is, I mean, of course, something that's very necessary and it's good, but actually implementing it is very difficult and it's going to take many years. And, it, and in some ways, at, at least from what I've read it, it kind of does already exist. Earlier we were talking about the Russian MIR payment system and union pay, which is not the same thing as SWIFT. But the point is that there already are these alternative mechanisms, but getting different banks to adopt them it is a very slow complicated process because banks are obviously their top concern is making money so I think that's the main reason it's simply just the international financial system is very complex and it involves thousands and thousands and thousands of banks thousands and thousands of middlemen and other you know technologies and just getting that all together is going to take some time now as for US companies, Uh, speaking out against this aggressive posturing against China. I mean, there have actually been some. There actually have been some companies that even have have been lobbying, although a lot of this is being done quietly, not very publicly. And I think there's a few things to point out. One, interestingly, one of the voices, one of the mainstream voices that has been very critical of this policy is actually Bloomberg not just Michael Bloomberg himself, but the Bloomberg media empire, Um, Bloomberg News, but also Bloomberg has a lot of financial investments. It has technologies for trading and selling stocks and everything. And Bloomberg, just in general, as a big company, has a lot of investments in China and has been speaking out a lot against the aggressive anti-China policies. But at the same time, There has been, there have been reports that a lot of these companies have been already looking for ways to, to move their, their supply chain out of China, or at least diversify their supply chain and move their production out of China. So that's going to be a process, I think, of several years as well. But we are seeing this slow process of economic decoupling. And even the Trump administration, it actually passed this, it, it, it created this policy. Um, not policy created this infrastructure, this institution that would provide money to companies to move their their technological infrastructure and factories and such out of China and many of them actually were were moving to Latin America or other parts of Asia. So it, it is happening, but from what I see, it's mostly kind of quiet because a lot of these companies also recognize that once you once you take that genie out of that bottle, you can't really put it back in. The more and more that U.S.-China relations deteriorate, they're not going to be able to continue operating in the Chinese market like they are now.
3: Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the reason why I uh, brought it up uh, is just uh, I need to uh, talk with some of our uh, of the manufacturing companies that we represent and see what their uh, take is also on uh, this. But personally, when I look at like every second, third thing that we buy is made in China. So I'm like, well, okay, uh, where's that stuff going to come uh, from? So why uh, do you want to chop your uh, uh, foot uh, off? So, but uh, but either way, Ben, thank you so much for taking the call. Really appreciate it. Uh, great work as always.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And it's a really good question. And, and the answer does seem that it would seem like a crazy policy, but look at what happened in Europe, what's going on in Europe right now. A lot of people said it would be insane for Europe to to impose sanctions on the, the country that provides the plurality of its oil and gas. And they did it anyway. So we're in we're a moment where, ironically, we're in a moment where the interests of the empire actually override the interests of some companies and And those companies, obviously, in general, do drive a lot of foreign policy interests in the U.S. and Europe. But when the interests of the empire are more important, the companies sometimes end up losing. As we see very clearly in Germany, Germany is suffering the most.
3: True. And the, finally, the thing that blew me away the uh, other day I, when I saw the report on uh, from Consortium News about Boeing, uh, the unions, and uh, it was a union topic uh, on uh, with regards to Boeing. And uh, it was mentioned in the article that uh, the unions and uh, the defense sector uh, were uh, very much behind pushing for a higher Pentagon budget. And, and I'm thinking like of that saying of uh, workers of the world unite, except in times of war they slit each other's throat. Uh, and it was just ironic to see uh, the fact of like the working uh, folks, and I don't know if it's union management or uh, uh, the, even uh, the uh, machinists on the floor, who uh, were like, yeah, okay. The more uh, money uh, the uh, Pentagon gets, is better uh, for us. Uh, screw everybody else type mentality. So, but that's another uh, topic for the other day. I know you've got callers, so uh, thank you again, Ben. Really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thank you, Fahim. So um, I, I do apologize to Steve, Sele and Olu. Um, but I had said before you all jumped on the queue that I was only gonna take the last four. So I'm gonna end with, I'm gonna do three more here just because it's already been an hour and 10 minutes. So sorry about that, I apologize. But I'm just gonna take the three more questions here and then conclude just cause I have to run in a few minutes. So here's Brady, go ahead. Hey Brady. Can you hear me? You're muted. You have to go to the bottom left and unmute. Hey, uh, Brady. All right. Well, um, I I just I always hate just sitting here in silence. So, Brady, if you uh, figure out how to unmute and if you jump back on, I will take your call. But I'm gonna jump to Hussein because. I just don't want to sit here in silence. Here's Hussein.
4: Ben. Oh yeah. Can you hear? Hey Ben, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Um, I just got back from, uh, Lebanon a couple of days ago. I spent about uh, a month in Lebanon and, uh, there's just a couple of things uh, I want to like talk about that I experienced in this, in this trip. Um, my, my family's uh, home is in, in, uh, in a town called Yaroun, right on the border with uh, Occupied Palestine. I mean, you, it's like a five-minute walk to the gate that takes you into Occupied Palestine from my house. And I was taking a walk one day with my uncle, and we started hearing these explosions, like, up in the fields. I told him, oh, what is that? And my uncle's like, oh, it's nothing. It's just uh, the line mines that are being uh, detonated. So then I told them, Let, can we get a, go closer? So there's an area where these, this group from Norway that uh, is uh, tasked with uh, ruining the landmines that are left over from Israel. And we went over and parked like next to them and started talking to them. And they said that it's still going to take them years to finish detonating all the landmines that are left over from Israel. And Israel left... Uh, you know, that area 22 years ago. So it just reminded me, like, uh, how horrible and, and an occupation is in, and how terrible. Like, a lot of people from my town can't access a lot of the land because it's closed off until they detonate all the landmines. Um, another thing, while I was in uh, Lebanon, my sister-in-law said she was going to to Iraq for to visit the Islamic shrines in Iraq, and I said I'll go, and we went to Iraq for a couple of days, and and I was it was really interesting when because uh, we we took a tour from like Kar- uh, Najaf to Karbala, and all these little towns, and then ended up in Samarra, and while like through driving uh, through all these areas, there's a lot of checkpoints, and there was a lot of posters and pictures of. Uh, Qasim Sulaimani and Abu Mahdi al everywhere. So, so I would ask our guide and the driver um, uh, like about that, because there was these guards that were wearing the pins and I would ask them. And then when we got to the area of like Samura or around Baghdad, they had told me how much ISIS had, how far ISIS had reached and how strong ISIS was in those areas and how significant they, or how they credit the liberation of all that area from ISIS to Abul Mahdi al-Muhandis and to Qasim Soleimani. I mean, I kind of already knew that, but it was really interesting to see in person that they still have their pictures up everywhere. They wear their pins on their chest. It's because they really do credit the liberation of um, that whole area to to Iran's assistance, to and then to the these two Qasim um, Soleimani and Abdul Mahdi Mohandis, who were murdered by by uh, the U.S. And it just you know reminded me like how how horrible that whole uh, murder was, and, and, and these guys are credited for fighting ISIS. I mean, the, the guy guide that was with us, he would say things like it would have been much, much worse. Uh, Who knows where Iraq would be today if it wasn't for these two guys and Iran and the assistance they they provided in fighting ISIS. So it it reminded me how the U.S. killed these two guys that are credited with fighting ISIS the most. I think they had the most significance in fighting ISIS than, than anyone else.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you had to pick one individual who was most responsible for defeating ISIS, it was Qasem Soleimani. And another person within the context of Iraq, who was very, very important in defeating ISIS, was Abu Mahi al who, of course, was the leader of the PMFs. And the PMFs, along with some support from the Iraqi military and the state, were integral in defeating ISIS in Iraq, and then, of course, in Syria, it was Iran, Hezbollah, and the Syrian government. So I- Iran helped defeat ISIS in both countries. So, that, I mean, Qasem Soleimani, I mean, he he is the defeater of ISIS. And the U.S. killed him, which says everything. I mean, it says everything about the U.S.'s role in helping to give birth and support ISIS. As for, you know, you're talking about Lebanon. I think you're talking about all of the cluster bombs that Israel dropped like just as it was leaving Lebanon, right? In southern Lebanon, it dropped thousands of cluster bombs and hundreds of Lebanese children, mostly children, have died in the last 20 years, nearly 20 years now, I guess, uh, a little over 10 years. Hundreds of Lebanese children have died because they think the little bomblets, the cluster munitions, are toys and they pick them up and are killed. Yes, I I know one, one specific
4: a relative of mine who who got killed like that back uh, right it was right after like in the 2000s but yeah cluster bombs i think they're called landmines but the the reason they put thousands of them close to the border is because they don't want anybody getting close to to the border they you know to protect themselves so on one side of the border it's beautiful and green and they have trees everywhere and on our side of the border it's uh, closed off land that, that has cluster bombs or landmines everywhere. And and also um, in Iraq, while talking to all these guys, you know, I would tell them, hey, Abu uh, Abul mahdi Mohandes was just one guy. I mean, you guys uh, have, you know, a lot of people who, who fought ISIS, but they are still really heartbroken about this guy and they say, uh, you know, Iran might have a lot of people sim- similar to Qasem Soleimani, but in Iraq, Iraq has had a lot of tough time. So they don't have, like many, Abu Mahdi al So they're really still really heartbroken uh, about it.
0: No, yeah, I mean, it, it. it's incredible to think about. Trump had no idea who the hell he was killing. I mean, it's so disgusting. It's so sadistic. He was killing the national hero of Iran, a hero for millions of people across the region who defeated ISIS. It's really disgusting. Um, Really quickly, I should also say that, just because I wanted to look up the exact figure, because I remember reading this, that in the last few days when Israel was withdrawing from Lebanon in 2006, in the 2006 war, when it was defeated by Hezbollah and the Lebanese resistance, Israel dropped 4 million cluster munitions. In the last few days, 4 million and the United Nations blatantly condemned this as immoral and illegal. And of course, you know, the U.N. is often very soft in its criticism, but even they were like, this is completely ridiculous. By the way, as of 2021, more than 123 countries around the world have signed the Convention on Cluster Munitions banning cluster bombs. Of course, apartheid Israel refuses to.
4: So, in the millions, yeah, I never saw that figure. So, no wonder it's taking them like close to twenty years to to get rid of all of them. Um, and then Iraq, I didn't check the weather before taking up my relative on the on the offer. It was like one hundred and eighteen degrees. So it was really hot when we were there, but it's, it was still a really good experience.
0: And were, I, I'm were glad. Without the power. Were there a lot of power
4: outages? Uh, you know, we stayed at the hotel where we were. No, but if you want to talk about power outages, Lebanon, Lebanon. Has, gets <laughs> like what? Gets like one hour of power a day, and the rest of the power, if you want to get it, you have to go through these like um, Generator. uh, g- generators that yeah. people rent. They'll rent it to you. They'll sell it to you. So, in my family's home, we have no AC. And we don't have anything significant that uses a lot of power. We had like one TV, and in the month of June, because I had to pay re- uh, electricity for the month of June, we, I paid 500 dollars.:
0: Oh my it was, God,
4: it was It was 15 million uh, Lebanese liras, which oh which is now 500 dollars. We don't have AC or anything. It was just lights, maybe one fan, a refrigerator. So it's crazy to, to, to get power in Lebanon. Very difficult. Now, oh how can afford, who can afford that?
0: Yeah, it's, that's so ridiculous. Yeah, the situation is awful. Yeah. Hey, thank you well, so much, Ben. I, I, I'll keep listening. Thank
4: you so much for your work.
0: Yeah, thank you, Hussein. Thanks for sharing amazing stories. We'll talk more soon. All right. All right. And I want to conclude here with a question from G. Young. Go ahead.
5: Hey, um, Ben. Thanks so much for the this. I hope I don't drag it for too long. Uh, I just hop in when the Indian guy was talking, and um, I just want to like add something uh, based on like you know what I heard from his comments. Uh, you know, there's like ideas like why China don't behave like Russia did uh, on a war stage. I I want to say maybe China has benefit from and um, the global system for the past 30 to 40 years and um, they are feeding towards the current like you know before the united states moved away from what they have like uh originally behaved before and um, i think like they mostly benefit from that but i assume russia was seeing like at most a mixed feeding for like the past 30 40 years um, another it's like, you know, because the Chinese system, uh, it's mostly like their leadership is right from a bureaucratic selection. So like they are all bureaucrats. So just imagine like, you know, this country being run by bureaucrats. What are the bureaucrats? The Bureaucrats are, can always be really boring, very conservative and really bad at PR. Um so just like, you know, if you take that line and you apply it to how their action uh through like their decision making. you can find some similarities. Um, another I want to add on something about this uh, recent Pelosi situation. Uh, I think like from a strategy uh, point of view, uh, I see uh, China don't really want to uh, you know get into any trouble with the United States militarily, which is, would be a crazy idea and uh, China's not ready to take over the island. Uh, but uh, what they really want is to do the military drill, which is announced right after Pelosi's landing. Uh, that has been like the first in history. They passed the, bin, the middle line of the Taiwan Strait. Uh, it's the first time they did the surrounding uh, island drill, and which for their military development, it isn't necessary. Uh, step to like you know maybe planning for their final uh takeover uh but but you know just like those are bureaucrats and just you know just imagine watching cgtn and like how how terrible those shows are uh i think it's mostly ends up with a failure in pr um and uh so like you know like even uh, but like a country like that size, any kind of decision would end up with like, you know, even it looked like a failure, but it will gain some po- like a positive effect. Uh, that's what I see. Uh, so uh, China, China's social media uh, before, I, I think 30 minutes before Pelosi's landing, they start this starting to stop people posting updates because like people starting to like live streaming of the news and they, they actually planned for this huge repercussion from online community in China, social media to uh, extremely furious about this inaction from the government. Because of that, I think, you know, because China have been benefited from the last 30 and 40 years and many people actually in the system, uh, very there are a lot of doves towards the West, but I think from like those winners of those fury uh, from the inaction, I think it will be uh, uh, the, the, the last nail on the coffin for the doves. Um, uh, I want to hear some, if you want to respond to that. And there's another really interesting uh, update is uh, the South Korean leader decided to not decide he will be on vacation during uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to South Korea. And I was, I was interested in, like how you uh, uh, like to analyze that move. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Great comments. I mean, especially the point about the Chinese public opinion. That's a crucial point. What's interesting is in the West, the propaganda narrative is that the Communist Party of China is supposedly aggressive and there's this myth that they talk about wolf warrior diplomacy and all this nonsense. But the reality is, as you pointed out, if you look at public opinion in China, they, a lot of people in China actually want the government to be a little more forceful and adversarial but the government's foreign policy is often very cautious. So I think that is another another reason why it's clear that China is going to continue further integrating with Russia, further integrating with Iran, uh, slowly uh, decoupling its economy from the West, not only because the US has made it clear that its goal is to overthrow the Chinese government and weaken China, but also simply because people in China there's an overwhelming sense of national pride and opposition to these Western imperialist policies and simply the bullying that the West is doing to China. So it's such, it's so important to keep that in mind. I mean, I'm guilty of this sometimes when, when I'm doing geopolitical analysis, we should also talk about the influence of popular opinion. Now, I think one of the reasons I'm so influenced, I'm so, uh, 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 used to not talking about the influence of popular opinion is because in the U.S. and in the West in general, popular opinion has no influence whatsoever on the government's foreign policy because the U.S. is not a democracy, obviously. It's an authoritarian ol- oligarchy, and foreign policy has nothing to do with popular opinion. We see that again and again with opposition to wars. And Whereas in China, actually, you raised a good point. Popular opinion actually does influence government policy And a recent poll found this was a poll that was actually sponsored by a NATO backed organization. And it found that China, that the people of China consider their government to be the most democratic government, along with the people of Vietnam on the planet. Uh, the, The poll asked people if they felt their government was responsive to their wants and their desires and if they consider their government a democracy and people in China and Vietnam had the highest responses, whereas the U.S. and France and a few other Western countries were below half of the people thought their country was democratic. So, very, very important point. Now, as for um, your other question, I'm sorry, what, your, what was the other question was about? Uh, uh, sorry, the South, was, Korea
5: oh, South Korea leader dodged their philosophy
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he's just trying to avoid getting involved in the conflict right now with Nancy Pelosi over Taiwan. I mean, as you know, the new South Korean president is very anti-Chinese and is very pro-Western. So I don't think it's like out of love of, of China or something. But South Korea and China still have very important relations, especially economic relations. And I mean, the reality is that he doesn't want to cause his, his damage to his own country. So President Yoon, who's the new very right-wing president, Yoon Suk-yeol, I think that he just made this decision that, that like meeting with Nancy Pelosi after she went to Taiwan would be, would be like uh, getting South Korea involved in this conflict, and he doesn't want to be involved right now.
5: Yeah, just add on, like, you know, he is super unpopular. His approval like, rating was dropped to, like, twenties something So I, I think he was really trying to avoid other problems. Um, another maybe a comment on to the Chinese system. I think, like, the Chinese system, uh, in a way, is really vulnerable to public opinion, like, because it's, like, a one-party rule. So any fuck up at the local level, people will direct their anger towards the top level or toward the system itself. So, like any fuck up, could potentially becoming or like the starting point of people's is extremely unsatisfaction towards the system itself. It's not towards a certain government, but also towards like you know the the whole uh, regime. Uh, I I was in the United States during the COVID break. I just felt it's really fascinating. Like China cannot, the Chinese system cannot survive after a million people died through one
0: disease um so thanks for doing this thank you i appreciate the the very interesting comments it's always good to get a perspective that's one of the things i like about these calls on colin here is we had someone who could talk about indian politics someone who could talk well about chinese politics Uh, unfortunately i i wasn't able to take more calls because i do have to run it's already been an hour and a half but i know uh Um, our friend from Argentina was here so it's always great to have people from you know so many different perspectives and that's why uh, you know I I do this show and I'll be back uh, next week so uh, this is my weekly stream here at Colin Uh, thanks for everyone for for joining if I wasn't able to take your call today I'm sorry about that but I will take you next time and uh, if you want to listen to this you can find it on iTunes or Spotify or whatever And I'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.